0: Welcome to an episode of the Product Coalition European Tour. Great to have Kate Lee here with me today. Welcome. And James Woodley, my co-host in London. Hello. Today we're going to be chatting with Kate about building product culture in a small organization, which I'm really looking forward to. Before we get stuck into that, a quick shout out for our location host here at WeWork in Holborn, London, which is Digital Directories. Digital Directories is a legal tech startup, which provides a platform for people to make informed decisions about legal issues and contact legal experts. Originally founded in Paris in 2015, the French site has over 3,500 lawyers and due to its success, a sister site in Belgium was launched in 2018, followed by Italy and UK in 2019. Now this tour and every single podcast is dedicated to raising awareness and support for the bushfire affected communities of Australia, as well as the wildlife. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us by going to bushfire.productcoalition.com. I'm visiting five cities across Europe interviewing over 50 product leaders like Kate to gain insights, knowledge, and experience to share with you the Product Coalition globally. If you've just discovered Product Coalition, welcome. We're a global community with over half a million readers, 6,000 Slack members, and thousands of podcast listeners. Before we get stuck in, I must give a big thank you to some brands and individuals that have already made massive contributions as donors to bushfire.productcoalition.com. First up is UserPilot, which is a code-free onboarding and adoption tool designed especially for product management teams. UserPilot helps to increase conversion, user retention rates, and reduce churn by guiding new users to their first aha moment with interactive walkthroughs, contextual product tours, and onboarding checklists. It allows product managers to build fully customizable behavior-triggered in-app experiences with a simple visual editor. Go to userpilot.com to grab a demo and a trial. Showbit Chug, I'd like to give a thanks to. Intentional product manager Showbit Chug. Showbit's a Google product manager and helps product managers to become product leaders and have careers they can be proud of. Go to www.intentionalproductmanager.com and sign up for Showbit's free class on the habits that turn product managers into exceptional product leaders and help them move through their careers fast. Some other individuals that have Supported the call so far are Rich Mironov and Chris Miles. Welcome, Kate. Hi, nice to be here. Great to have you here. Although you're not from London, you're in London.
1: Yes, I am. So based in New York, decided to take a much needed vacation and decided to stop by.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for hooking up, making some time for us and chatting on a podcast here. Now, in each of the podcast episodes, we, have, we like to have a bit of an icebreaker. In Melbourne series, it was a bit of a locals guide to Melbourne. Okay. In the Sydney series, it was a pub quiz. And for London, we, we, we've got the game called Product Inventions, English or Not. Oh,
1: God. Okay. I'll okay. Try. All right. Let's
0: do it. <laughs> so the first one. This is going to be interesting. We're an American. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Firstly, do you know what a Scotch egg is?
1: It's the egg wrapped in the crispy things, and there's like meat inside also. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. All right. Bonus point for okay, that. Firstly, not thank being you. a local.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an egg wrapped inside a sausage, wrapped inside breadcrumbs. It's like a poor man's tteokken. Yeah. I think. Perfect <laughs> so,
1: description. So the Scotch
0: egg, English or not? I feel like that's a trick question.
1: I'm going to say English. Nailed
0: it. Yes. Okay, great. Yes. The Scotch egg. 1738, the royal grocer lays, lays claim to the very first version of this Russian dough of the snack world. The Scotch bit is something of a misnomer these days. In the original recipe, it referred to the provenance of the beef used and not whatever's used nowadays in Scotch eggs, which we don't want to go into. So that's where the Scotch part comes from for a Scotch egg. James, you've got the next one for us. Yep. The toothbrush. English or not? Not. It is. What makes you say that?
1: Yeah. I'm not (laughs) going (laughs) to say.
0: English do have like a historical (laughs) reputation of bad teeth though around the world. I know that from 15 years in Australia. I was going to say this comes from some
2: sort of animation. You know, everywhere it was we the go, Simpsons. the English Was it? It was the Simpsons. That, that was yeah. my
1: first foray into yeah. British dentistry. Right,
2: okay. But yeah. we well, I hope we're uh, you know, fixing that reputation. I think it's
1: fine so far.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the toothbrush was invented in 1770 by William Addis, and the idea
0: came to him in jail for causing a riot. Yeah, there you go. So, if you need a good product idea, get arrested, go to jail. Got it. it. That was
1: you. my next. you plenty step. of time to sit yeah. and
0: think uh, <laughs> about about these things. Now, if you're going to Buckingham Palace for tea with the Queen, with the Queen this afternoon, how would you get there? Cab, tube, right, share, bike, scooter, or walk? So many choices in London.
1: I'm going to say walk because I walk everywhere.
0: Yeah. yeah. Nice. Nice. That's good.
1: So I good can't, for you. Good for the environment. Can I walk there? Yeah. Yeah. That's doable. <laughs> it's, <laughs> not, it's,
2: not, it's not far from here. Okay. Yeah, I reckon 15 minutes at a good pace.
1: Okay. Yeah. So is that the correct answer? But there's did no correct answer, I they think no, it's oh,
0: your God. choice. <laughs> just your take on London.
1: Got it. Um, and a favourite London landmark. That's hard. I mean, I really did enjoy just looking at the Big Ben. I mean, that kind of architecture is really pretty. Nice. Yeah.
0: Nice. And they're doing a bit of work now. Yeah, I was gonna with the scaffold.
1: I mean, I saw it, I would say like four years uh, ago. Okay. Yeah. Super basic answer, but yeah. Cool. That's good. That's good. Um, So today we're going to be
0: chatting about building a product culture Mm -hmm. in a small organization. But before we do, do you mind sharing your story into the hot seat so far, your career path? Um, How did you get to this point?
1: Yeah. And I think I took a pretty unconventional route to product and technology just in general. I was your typical pre-med student. I thought I was going to go into MSF or all those things. I was a neuroscience major, and I had a really strong focus in research all throughout. Clearly, decided I didn't want to go to medical school, and did epidemiology instead. And then after that, decided that clinical research was where I really loved everything. And that was actually my first job when I came to New York for the first time back in 2015. I was working at a genetic testing startup, and in my role, I kind of had a lot of product responsibilities. I was working with the product and marketing team while also liaising with the bioengineering team, making sure that everything that was made to be prioritized was actually getting delivered on time. I didn't really quite know that that was like one facet of a product manager's role. And at that point, I was like, do I want to go into product or do I want to do data science? I was kind of toying between the two. And that kind of took me to my next role at Wild Cornell Medicine I was working with basically large health informatics data sets, trying to standardize them for essentially research end users. So if I was a researcher and I had all this wealth of data, how can I extract it? How can I scale it if I want more data fields? So I was building things for that. And that was when I kind of decided that I really loved the customer centricity of product and kind of made a hard shift into product by way of finance, which I knew nothing about. But uh, that's where I ended up now in common bond. And I think I started mainly in the back office role, kind of turning your application into money. And after that, kind of just blossomed from there.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. You know what? I love that about product management. Everyone's got such a different story and Mm. it goes to show how accessible it is and can be. There's no traditional route in, is there? No, I guess not. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Brilliant. And we're going to be talking about product culture Mm -hmm. and I know you're going to be able to tell us a lot about Common bond and the culture there. But you mind just summing up a little bit about Common Bond and, yeah. and what Common Bonds?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think simply put, Common Bond is a fintech company. We're based in New York, and our main focus is offering student loan based solutions. So that can span anything from hey, I need money to borrow for school. I need to refinance my student loans after I graduate. And now I'm working and I want some student loan repayment benefits through my employer. So those are the suite of solutions that we offer right now. We've got over 250,000 users. We've originated about $3 billion in loans. And we've got about 300 corporate clients right now.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this conversation because hey. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, that's one of the big shifts, I would say, from the last 10 years is how banks or financial businesses think about the end user. It's not just someone we're giving or has to fit a bucket that mm-hmm. we lend to and then we do our hardest to get that yeah. back. It's got a lot softer and become a lot more meaningful over time. So I'm looking for, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, so yeah. How would you describe, firstly, your definition of product culture sure. outside of common bond, just just generally. What does that yeah, mean to Yeah, so I
1: think a lot of those words are thrown around. You've got product culture, product mindset. And I think at the end of the day as Product people, your main focus is your customer and your end user. Your job is to be their evangelist. So, when I think about product culture or product mindset, it's making sure all your processes, your people, your platforms, everything that you're building is in service of that customer centric focus so that you're trying to solve the core problem that the user has. And you're solving that by way of things like design thinking or an agile development process. So, for me, the product culture is. The focus on the user and outwardly building your team and your company from there
0: brilliant, thank you James, from uh, your backgrounds at engineering technology, do you have this perception of like a product culture that, that you see yeah becoming stronger recently
2: as well right okay. so you know there was there's the old days of product tells engineering what to do and, and there's a great big wall in between these days it's a very much more collaborative thing. And that does go all the way from like you're saying saying there, the user value, you know, why am I as an engineer building this thing? Mm -hmm. It's
0: very empowering to know that. So can you tell us how have you shaped this culture at CommonBond? What does product culture mean to CommonBond?
1: So I think I want to just take a step back and say that it's definitely not just on the product team or the product person to influence this. I think in any great product-led organization, everyone is technically part of product. So you have to kind of embed that into everybody. And I think that you can do that in several ways. I don't think there's any right answer. But for us, what has worked is making sure you've, one, got values, whether they're like business metrics or like just company values in general that you're building processes out of. Clearly, with any large or small organization, if you have no process, everything kind of falls apart. And in an especially lean product team, I would say we've got me, we have another product person who's the director of product, and we have two product designers. And so that's a very, very small team. And we have even more of an impetus to lean towards our processes and make sure everyone adheres to them. So I think that no matter what, what we've done from the very beginning is just make sure we've got a process for prioritization, for delivery, for reporting, and then evaluating any of those metrics and making sure that Hey, like, are we doing the right thing? If not, how can we quickly and nimbly pivot to the next thing so that we're still addressing the problem without wasting too much time?
0: Awesome. When building culture in such a small, small team, when you go from like two to three, you know, it's a 50% growth in the the team. So culture can shift quite dramatically. How do you ensure you're building? the culture that, that you want or, or the yeah, right culture as sure. as growing a small small. yeah sure. I mean,
1: I think that it kind of has a lot to do with who you're hiring. Yep. So it's a little difficult. And I think that some companies have more resources than others to be able to, you know, really scout the best product people. I mean, what we've done with hiring has been like really thorough product prompts that are trying to get to the root of how this person is solving a problem. And that's how we're evaluating everybody. So I would say that one, it's just how adept they are at solving the problem and pulling in the relative stakeholders and designers or technology asking the right questions to get to what the actual solution is. And then the second is really just like, how are they as a person? How are they communicating? How do they like extract requirements out of people? Because I think as you both know, sometimes people tell you a thing that they want, but it's not actually the thing that is solving the issue.
2: <laughs> yeah. Do you different. find the, the I hate the term, but cultural fit, you know, you hiring more, are they going to help us deliver our goals or are they going to do their job better? What do you look for there?
1: I mean, I think it's a playful and like careful balance between the two. We've tried to avoid just saying they're not a fit or yeah, they're a fit because it's not very descriptive. It's not helpful, first of all, for the next hiring manager. But really specifically, why aren't they a good fit? Is it because they aren't thinking through problems the way we would expect a person of this caliber to think? Is it because they aren't like particularly communicative? They're just not friendly? Mm-hmm. I think just being as explicit as you can about what exactly the fit is because you yourself and your company, your peers, you're defining what your culture is. So what kind of culture are you trying to foster? Do you want like a culture of like, learning and teaching and like do you think that person will fit into that
0: culture is so abstract <laughs> do you have like a playbook or something written down that helps sort for of culture yeah for culture to, to sort of shape people on their way
1: in as part of induction or that's a good so question much? i think we always rely on the company values that we have at common bond right so there's 10 i should know them from the top of my head but it's things like having fun always or like bringing each other up getting better every time, leaving things better than when you found them. So you were always looking back on that when we're say we've got two very, very good candidates. They're both extremely great. How do they tally against the company values that we have and that we always try to perpetuate? So I think at the core, that's one, but for product culture specifically, I think it's how well are they able to articulate the needs of their end user and customer? How do they ask the right questions to the right people? And take into consideration impact and urgency around all those initiatives so that they can start solving these problems. Do they have bigger, more ideas that the user isn't even thinking about?
0: Awesome. Can I ask, going back to the sort of interview and finding <laughs> cultural fit during yeah. during that, are you able to spot that at the resume level?
1: I don't think always. Obviously, it depends on how wonderful the resume is mm-hmm. and how great the detail. But I think Product culture has so much to do with how you're communicating and how you're able to evaluate and make decisions that sometimes you can't have that on a resume. It's more, I would say, it's more visible when you have a product prompt that you're presenting. You're given a problem and then you're asked to think through, walk through, talk through the solutions.
2: I wonder if the best resumes you see are where the person is treating themselves as the
0: product. (laughs) They're selling themselves, right? Right.
1: That's true. Maybe it's also know, true.
2: Those are the subliminal yeah. things that come through. Maybe <laughs> I don't know.
0: Well, I certainly enjoy when you can feel a personality mm. in in a resume, either mm-hmm. by the style it's written, sometimes the way it's laid out, and um, all the content, and yeah. but then sometimes that's your own judgment mm. on that resume. It's not necessarily the person Absolutely, behind yeah. it, and yeah. obviously more and more businesses are read about now, take all of the bias, try and take the bias yeah. out of resume reviews mm-hmm. by removing names and things like that, that yeah. allude to whether it's male or female of and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So that, you know, have these sort of stereotype yeah, ideas I mean, about fit.
1: I agree. I, I've had jobs where they've asked you to upload a headshot
0: and wow, this is like yeah. product
1: and technology jobs. It's not, you know, for acting <laughs> or anything in the arts. So, wow.
0: Yeah. 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 So when you've got a culture, it's got to be incubated and looked after, and that can mean trade-offs or compromises. Mm -hmm. What are some examples that that you can share around that?
1: So I think the most obvious trade-off is when you have a very small team, is what can we feasibly deliver to you given that time and resources are held constant? I mean, I think companies of all sizes and structures struggle with that. But for us, I think that especially that we're very, very small, we are so, so intentional about what we set as priority. And we've tried to make this easier by allowing pretty much everyone in the company to submit ideas for a product council. This is something that we hold every month. So we've got stakeholders from operations, from marketing, partnerships or anything. We're all discussing all of the ideas that came forward and if you submit an idea all you really have to do is create a business case around it and what we're evaluating you on is impact you know technical effort how many resources do we need for how long is this a project where we have one particular expert or is knowledge shared across the board that anyone can pretty much handle this and more importantly urgency does this need to happen right now or can we wait 2 months from now so i think when we're making those trade-offs, it's always about what can be worked on and what can't. It's not necessarily we can't do it right now. It's just how do we envision the roadmap unfolding later on? So I would say prioritization of initiatives is one of the biggest trade-offs we always have to make now that we're so, so intentional about what we decide to work on. The second, I think, is just its focus. And it kind of leads into that. I think in bigger companies, you've maybe got like an innovation division or something where they can just test ideas. And if they fail, there's no like huge capital consequence really, because you've got this cushioning and padding. Whereas for us, the things that we can innovate on or test, they've got to have a very clear business and customer impact. Mm -hmm. And when we do test, it's like, what is the lightest weight thing that we can ship? so we can learn as quickly as possible.
2: So you take in, does that mean that everything you build is MVP? Not
1: you know, you're always. You're trying to get there as
2: quickly as yes. possible?
1: Yeah. So I, I would say that, like for example, last year we had to do an overhaul of one of our applications for student loans and it was for a co-signer loan. This required two individuals to... Apply for the loan and they could apply at any given point in time. So it had to be dynamic enough, flexible enough. They need to be able to change things after a hard credit inquiry. There's a lot of little complicated things in there. And everything that we shipped out, I wouldn't say was necessarily an MVP, but it was maybe the lightest first iteration of something while still being able to handle all the core issues that plagued us from the beginning.
0: Can I ask in traditional financial? businesses and the industries they're associated with the, the regulation and the compliance is, is so so high and when I think yeah. about traditional banks and I'm generalizing mm-hmm. here but you often associate all of that seriousness with the culture inside yeah. the bank and the company how do you keep things fresh as a fintech <laughs> business that still has the same overhead in terms of regulation yeah. and compliance whilst keeping it a fun environment. What do you do differently that maybe a traditional finance business might not do?
1: So I'm not sure if we're very unique in this case, but I think for one, something you were speaking to earlier, we're, I think, one of the first companies that has a one-for-one social promise. So for every loan that's funded, we are also funding education in underdeveloped countries through Pencils of Promise. So that's one thing. I think that's like very core to the company's mission. So everyone who joins the company has already got that kind of embedded in their work. The second is, like I said earlier, we have this culture of like teaching and learning, but we have something called Common Bond University. So employees can teach each other skills such as SQL, Python, Java, and pretty much anyone can join the class. One of the greatest outputs of this actually is that we had a Python class that went on for about eight weeks, I think. And this was attended by people in finance and operations and they actually were able to automate a lot of their workflows as a result of this class yeah. so i would say having a culture that is amenable to learning and even more amenable to teaching really helps remove that like stuffiness because if you can reach across the aisle or walk over to someone's desk and ask a question and feel like they can kind of give you a very brief rundown or one on one of what they're doing then it's not so unapproachable for you. So I would just say that we have a really good teaching and learning culture. And I think that's really helped.
2: So that that class was given by an employee. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't so, an external teacher. Came No, in.
1: no. So the Python class is actually taught by someone on our lending analytics team. So he primarily dealt with risk and he had all these Python scripts for, you know, our different rate versions and stuff. And he taught that course. And basically everyone was just like, okay, we'll attend and, You know, you see if you can apply it to your real life and your work, or it's just something that you want to learn.
0: There's a big cultural statement that to hear that there's so much curiosity so Mm -hmm. broadly across the organization as well. That's fantastic. But also what a safe space to
2: go, I'm going to go and give a class. Yeah, Rather than with a bunch of strangers with a load of colleagues.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they know this person, they probably work next to him. And this was something that was so important to me because like I had no financial background. I had never taken a finance class or an econ class, so I had to ask, what's APR? How does that work? How do you calculate it? I had spent 10 years in healthcare, so to be able to ask not just my boss but my peers and be able to learn just as effectively from them was a huge thing.
0: Was your major in neurology?
1: Neuroscience. neuroscience yeah so. you
0: run a neuroscience
1: class <laughs> I I, uh, I basically was studying psycholinguistics so I had like an eye tracking research right, project cool. on like bilinguals so I thought I was going to go into that I, I had so many yeah. different yeah. ideas but yeah
0: I'm sure the team would love to have a little intro into what that world's yeah. quite fresh
1: <laughs> yeah so the common U- bond university isn't just for hard skills in technology you know we have like a juggling class oh. so it could be really anything
2: Fantastic. I love it. I feel like there's another podcast session there.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> it.
1: That's Juggling it. Juggling one oh one. Um one of the
0: things around product led organizations is the ability to have deep empathy very broadly across the organisation and Finance, particularly lending businesses around student loans, particularly in the American market, get some bad international press of students being in, owing tens of thousands of dollars and Just paying tens? off for career. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, hundreds <laughs> over there. Can I ask, what, what do you do as an organization to build empathy, not only within the product team, but to share and spread that yeah. empathy of someone who's taken a gamble ultimately on investing in
1: education and hoping yeah. to pay it off? I mean, I'm that person. Right. You know, about, I want to say when I was 18, I didn't know what I was signing on for, technically. I just assumed that this was a loan to help me go to school. I didn't know the ins and outs of how to repay, how interest would accrue and capitalize. But I think one of the core things that we found is financial literacy is just lacking pretty much across the board, not just for the students, but also their parents or whoever their guardian is. We're trying to build more, I guess, education around their loan throughout our application and prior to the application experience as well. We also have the care team able to send you emails with resources, text messages about the status of your loan, what happens afterwards. I think having that information is very empowering because as a student or as a parent, you want to be able to have agency around your own financial future. I mean, this is something that will impact you 10, 15, 20 years down the line. So I think education and making sure that information is accessible throughout our application or throughout our whole you know, suite of tools and the experience of CommonBond is so, so important. So what we do as a company, I think, is we're always trying to think of ways to help further that education, to help further not just you speeding through your application, but making sure that as you're speeding through, you're given as much information about your loan, about your future as possible.
0: And to really get the feel for the customer, Mm -hmm. how do you generate that with like your engineering team or your analytics team? Mm -hmm. How do they really get to truly understand or have most of them been the customer uh, along the way?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of our employees, not just the technical team, are in that situation currently. But we also have full story sessions where I'm not sure if you're familiar, but full story allows you to witness how a customer is going through your website, your application. So we have that and we all kind of watch and you can see people thrash their cursor or, or rage click and where they're doing that, at what time, where they're looking is so informative, especially when you've got your inspect box open and you're like, what exactly is going on? What errors are happening how is that translating to what the user is experiencing? Consistently building that kind of customer empathy is huge. Another thing we do is customer care happy hour where we listen to calls and the care team leads that. And we kind of go through usually different kinds of themes of customer calls, whether they're calling about a refinancing loan or everyone is coming through a partnership and they don't know how to get through to the application. So we're constantly In things like that, where we're not just gathering really, really crucial data about our customers, but it also kind of turns into, hey, this is probably a support ticket, or this is a net new feature request that would be really helpful, or it's a big initiative. Let's submit it for a product council. So there are plenty of opportunities, I think, for everyone in the company to just know who our customer is. We also have MPS and CSAT scores in our Slack channel, so we can see that as a company.
0: Brilliant! Yeah. I'm great. Glad to hear so much transparency.
2: I yeah. Suppose. yeah, it sounds quite joined up thinking as well. You know, you've not got separation between you support people are taking phone calls and yeah. it, they're never reaching the product. people that can change yeah. something. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree.
1: I mean, I think having that visibility is huge, and that's also something that we're trying to work on as a product team as well. Not just visibility about hey, this is what we're working on. Come to sprint review, but sharing our overall roadmap? Because I think not everyone can just look at product plan or something and yeah. be like, oh, that bar, you know, means this thing. How can you visualize it and make that information more accessible?
0: And it, like your products is changing lives. You yeah. know, your finance and yeah, education hope so. <laughs> that, that's hopefully beneficial to them getting yeah. a higher paid job. And I can imagine some of those phone calls could be quite tough conversations oh, yeah. and emotional conversations for your customers mm-hmm. struggling to repay or, and these types of things. Yeah. So it's it's great to hear that that emotion is accessible. Oh, of course.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think put yourself in a customer's shoes who has current student loans, both private and federal. Maybe they're at an interest rate that is just insane. And what they're trying to do is just refinance so that they're not paying hundreds of dollars more per month. And they're not paying it for maybe five or 10 more years. We actually had a letter from someone who, when they refinanced, they were able to shave 12 years off of their loan, which is gigantic. Yeah. It's a big impact. Yeah.
0: Great to hear. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this session. Kate. Yeah, I It's been, you it's been great. Yeah. Really Thanks good. so much. I'd love to chat to you when I do come to New York. I'm sure there's going to be a New York tour yeah. at some point. So I look forward to, to chatting some more. Awesome. And, and thank you so
1: much for having me. It's, it's been, been great. An absolute
0: pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you. And great. thank you for listening on the podcast or watching us on YouTube or IGTV or Twitter, wherever you may be. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed this session, please do remember all of these podcasts are here to raise awareness and funds for the bushfire affected communities and wildlife of Australia. So please have a think. About visiting bushfire.productcoalition.com. Until the next episode, thanks for tuning in. Thank you all. Thank Thank Thank
1: you.